Hi, you're listening to the Health Disparities Podcast from Movement is Life, conversations about health disparities with people who are working to eliminate them. I'm Bill Finnerfrock, and today I'm discussing health disparities uh, and health policy with uh, Shreyasi Deb. Uh, Shreyasi is the Senior Director for Health Policy at the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. She's done research uh, in peer-reviewed publications in disability, health, and healthcare disparities and aging. Appreciate the uh, time you're spending with us today to talk about uh, these health disparities and health policy issues. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you kind of got into this whole area. Um, you're you're not a physician; uh, you're a researcher. Um, what what got you interested in health disparities and in, in this area? So thanks, Bill, for uh, having me here on your podcast. Um, I uh, first got interested in disparities um, across the broad spectrum of what we know as social services in college uh, when I took up a course on developmental economics. I majored in economics. Uh, That was in India, which is a huge uh, country, very populous, but we have all kinds of disparities and a lot of diversity uh, of issues. Uh, When I came to the United States for my doctoral degree um, in health policy, this was an area that really stood out for me uh, as an immigrant, as a woman of color, yet being privileged, I could see how, um, you know, just depending on where you live or what your resources are or how you look, could sort of determine how long you would live uh, and what quality of healthcare you can get or what kind of education you can get. So all these things really rattled me and led to my dissertation where I looked at uh, differences based on race, ethnicity, and gender on um, access to primary care, on um, patient-provider communication. Uh, very interesting. So that's how I got into it. So you're at the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, and one of the things that has been going on in uh, your area in orthopedics in particular is looking at changing how we pay uh, orthopedic surgeons for uh, knee and joint replacement, uh, how that impacts hospitals, um, what are generically referred to as bundled payments. Um, there's been a lot of concern that bundled payments might exa- actually exacerbate uh, health disparities, the things that, that you've already recognized under the current payment system. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about uh, bundled payments and, and the concerns about what that may cause and why with regard to uh, health disparities? Yes, I uh, would want to start with where bundled payments really work. Uh, They are one modality of value-based payment, as you know. Uh, So at this time, the kind of healthcare expenditure that we have in this country, one way to sort of uh, solve that issue is to pay for volume, pay for value, I'm sorry, rather than volume, which we've been doing all along through the fee-for-service program. So I think it's a step in the right direction, but you're correct. Until and unless we can uh, introduce risk adjustment and 
I'm talking not only about clinical risk adjustment, but also socioeconomic risk adjustment. And it's awfully hard to do. Uh, until and unless we do that, we'll continue to see a lot of unintended consequences of policy as we uh, say, uh, for example, the comprehensive uh, care for joint replacement program, it's uh, CJR for short from the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. It's a hospital-led bundle program. It's a demonstration. It's going to come to an end uh, in a year or so. Uh, there has already been peer-reviewed literature that shows that hospitals, uh, safety net hospitals that care for uh, a certain group of patients might be penalized more than hospitals that um, probably care for less riskier patients in the sense who have more resources or have lower comorbidities, things like that. So we definitely need to have both clinical as well as socioeconomic risk adjustment for these bundle payment models to work. So I wanted to, to dig in a little deeper on that. The, the concept of risk adjustment in and of itself is not uncommon. You know, we've been doing it for a long time at an insurance company level where if an insurance company takes on a large cohort of, of individuals who have uh, multiple um, med medical conditions, we're going to pay them a little bit more. Um, but somehow that concept doesn't seem to have extended down to the provider level where we're now shifting financial risk. Um, is, is that kind of what, what you're, t you're talking about? Yes, I think for this to work, uh, and here at Movement is Life, we talk about how there's not one solution to these issues. We have to look at providers, communities, we have to look at policymakers, everybody has to wor work together uh, to sort of lessen the disparities. I'm not even talking about removing them altogether because we are sort of on that journey. Uh, but um, I very strongly believe that everybody has to take risks, including, uh, you know, hospitals, physicians, or other kinds of clinicians. It's a, it's a team sport. Everybody has to get into the game. But as I mentioned, it's awfully hard to do. How do you scale that? And then the biases come into the picture, and that's what we see. Uh, but we that should not deter us. That should not be a disincentive for us to move away from uh, value-based care. So you you made a distinction between uh, what you referred to as, as clinical uh, or uh, medical risk adjusting versus uh, social uh, risk adjusting. And I think historically, the medical side is where there's been an acknowledgement that, yes, it's appropriate. But the social side of it, uh, not so much. Can you talk about that a little bit and what you mean by uh, or give some examples of those social? Uh... Absolutely. Yes, that's that's where I think we need a lot of uh, work right now. Uh, and thanks for raising that. Uh, we uh, for, uh, Let me give you an example. So total knee arthroplasty, uh, since we are talking about musculoskeletal care, uh, it's one of the most commonly done procedures, not only in the Medicare population, but also almost Medicare population, maybe 55 to 65, that kind of age range. Uh, 
recently, Medicare decided that total knee arthroplasty can also be done in the hospital outpatient setting, and it had a lot of unintended policy consequences. And we at the Academy have been working with the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services to educate all the stakeholders involved. Um, and then one thing, one part of that education is sort of uh, sharing illustrative case studies. Uh, so to give you an example uh, of a socioeconomic risk factor, um, 66, 65, 66-year-old patient who doesn't have clinical comorbidities, doesn't have other um, uh, chronic conditions, uh, goes in for an elective uh, knee replacement, uh, is expected to have full recovery, very good outcomes. Uh, this person um, lives 10 steps up in, in New York City, uh, what are you going to do? For the surgeon, the decision at that point is to probably let that patient heal for maybe a night, a day and a half at the hospital, um, or maybe two midnights, stay at the hospital, and then go home, because just because of the uh, living situation of that person, or maybe that person just lives by themselves, there's no family member to take care of. Um, rural uh, situation, maybe uh, somebody who is otherwise healthy, You talk, we are talking about clinical comorbidities, medically, that person is expected to recover quickly, but they're they live in a rural farm and they do not have family nearby. We cannot really let them go home, um, you know, after something like a knee surgery. So, uh, so that's what I'm talking about. So, to to put it into kind of economic, let's say that patient who needs to spend an extra two nights in the hospital, and just to pick a number, let's say it's a thousand dollars a day uh, for a day at the hospital. You've added $2,000 of cost to that uh, procedure, and who, who's paying that 2000 under fee-for-service? Medicare would have uh, paid for that, presumably. But now uh, the, the surgeon is going to be on the financial hook or the hospital is going to have to pay for that uh, additional time. Is that what you're talking about? So let's look at it slightly differently. Uh, so... For one thing, what I gather uh, from my research, from my look at these procedures, most of the cost is uh, focused on the first day, which is the day of surgery. Uh, and then we are probably talking about room and board and that depending on the hospital, you threw a figure of $1,000. Let's assume that it's so. Uh, so that versus this person developing post-operative risks uh, and then coming back into the hospital, you know, readmission. So a readmission. Readmission okay. or maybe depending on the time of day or what the situation is, maybe coming back to the uh, emergency department and what kind of costs are we talking about. So we have to compare our expenses, that uh, our savings to that kind of expenses, which we all know are really very, very high. When we are trying to save that $1,000, we are maybe putting ourselves at risk of spending way more when that patient might come back. Right. One of the concerns that uh, people have expressed is that 
um, because of the fact that the payment models don't take all of these things into consideration, that uh, hospitals or surgeons will become more selective in the types of patients they'll choose to take on. Um, so if they feel that a patient is at greater potential risk of readmission or to be more costly, they'll simply say, you know, I'm sorry, you're not a good candidate. Uh, it's what people refer to as uh, cherry picking or lemon dropping. Do you think that's a real uh, concern? And, and what are the p- potential implications of that if it is, uh, if that does come to pass? Um, well, I would uh, sort of divide my response into two sections. To begin with, I think uh, our physicians are all um, in this because they really want to see better outcomes uh, for their patients, and they're really, really committed to that. Uh, And I I really believe in the innate uh, uh, goodness of our physicians and that that's the service that they do to all of us, to all of their patients. So um, I I think that uh, by design, I do not think uh, physicians would likely to be selective about the patients that they see. Now, there is definitely a risk of being selective. What kind of patients uh, that are suitable for a certain surgery, what parameters are being looked into. And there, I would uh, like to highlight the concepts of equality and equity. Um, so uh, it all, the same size thing doesn't fit everybody. So can we have incentives for our physicians to look at patients who might be, for example, our Dr. O'Connor talks about Faith, her patient, uh, who is uh, who's obese, and they have to make her lose 40 pounds to have a knee replacement surgery. Um, somebody like Faith, can we really have an incentive for Faith surgeons to really work with Faith and provide her with, a lot of times it's just social support, as we all know, and Bill, you've been a big proponent of all the social services, so you know maybe Faith just needs some social support, like the programs that we do here at Movement is Life, um, those kind of things. Maybe build that into uh, programs. For example, Medicare, uh, Medicare Advantage has been trying to um, you know, help seniors with uh, fresh food, warm food, those kind of things, some um, basic um, help with the activities of daily living, some of which traditional Medicare does and pay for. Our solution probably is focusing more on social services, and we are going to save a whole lot of expenditure on the medical side if we do that. Yeah, one of the the, uh, situations you mentioned, Dr. O'Connor and and the patient, um, one of the other aspects of that is it's one thing to tell a patient, you know, okay, we'll lose 40 pounds, and patient will say, well, how do I do that? Oh, you know, walk, you know, Mm -hmm. every night just walk, you know, walk a mile or whatever, build up to whatever you can. And then, but if you're an individual who lives in a a rough neighborhood, you know, where crime, drugs, other things may be very prevalent, the idea of walking, uh, which seems perfectly logical, perhaps to the surgeon or to the doctor, um, is really not a realistic uh, possibility for the patient. So, um, you know, it, it speaks to uh, to the doctors also trying to understand the circumstances in which that individual lives 
and then, you know, whether it's the doctor or the hospital kind of working with that patient to figure out, all right, are there other options, yes. are there other alternatives? I think there was recently uh, some stories about a woman who lost a lot of weight just walking in place right. uh, in her apartment. Yes. Uh, and so, you know, but sometimes telling the patient those uh, opportunities, those options uh, exist. I str- very strongly feel that the next frontier for our health policy makers should be focusing more on social services. As you know, all OECD countries spend way more on social services than they do on healthcare expenditure, and we are outliers in how much we spend on medical services. We should focus more on social services and, um, and then sort of rebalance that, and I think we'll be at a better place. Um, that, that's, uh, I think you're, you're spot on there. Um, tell us a little bit more from a research perspective. Are there other aspects of this that, that, uh, you'd like to be able to research or where you think there's a need for some additional, uh, research to help better inform policymakers? Yes. Uh, I briefly mentioned uh, in the first discussion that we were having about uh, patient-provider communication. In my research, I have seen that there is definitely better communication when a provider and patient has uh, racial, ethnic, or gender concordance. We know that men and women approach care very differently. They talk to their providers. They talk to their physicians very differently. That's there. But also, and, and you know, we need to borrow from education policy. There's a lot of literature uh, in how a student responds to a teacher who looks like them? How do I respond to a teacher that who, who looks like me, speaks like me, has had lived experiences like I have had? Um, so I think we need a lot of research. Uh, in my, my research, I had limited data, but I would want to expand that and see how that impacts outcomes. I did see some impact of better communication, having better um, outcomes, and I was focusing only on mental health, uh, but I would like to see more research on that. One of the things, as you know, Movement is Life uh, has been doing is working with Congressman John Lewis on uh, some legislation, uh, essentially saying, you know, let's let's factor this into our evaluation of models and uh, get people to build uh, the models in such a way to proactively try to address these issues rather than looking at outcomes data three, four years down the road and going, gee, uh, we have a health disparities problem that's even worse now uh, than it was before. Can you speak a little bit about uh, about this idea of looking at how we're designing models and trying to f- build these factors into the models? Um. Well, I uh, so there's the public side of things that we are going to work on with Congressman Lewis, uh, Medicare and Medicaid models. And then there are a lot of innovations also happening in the commercial insurance space. Um, and uh, there, it's no secret that it's driven a lot by our uh, soaring health expenditure, healthcare expenditure, and everybody wants to sort of uh, control that and yet improve quality of care. Um, well, I, uh, as I said, it's very difficult statistically to really, really um, real-time study where the impact is of building in risk adjustment. Um, but uh, there is definitely some impact if you 
build in and that's probably where the innovation center was created and was given such a broad uh, freedom to sort of experiment and they have these demonstration projects which are like four or five years long and then they are, they do evaluations every year uh, sort of to see where we are in short term uh, and then sort of build it out and the innovation center has been doing that because they did the bundle payment for care improvement uh, model and then now they have the bundle payment for care improvement advanced where they have built on their learning from the earlier model and um, CJR also came in because uh, two of the procedures I think uh, of that I think one was cardiovascular and the other was musculoskeletal um, lower extremity joint replacements uh, showed huge savings in Medicare under BPCI so CJR was a mandatory model so they are trying to see if voluntary models work vis-a-vis mandatory models or now CGR is a partially voluntary, partially mandatory model. So sort of building in those uh, uh, policy drivers in the model to see how things move. And then you can do those um, difference in different studies or natural experiments to look at outcomes. From your work with those folks and seeing where they've made adjustments, do you feel that there's an understanding uh, on their part that, that these are serious uh, and significant issues that do need to be uh, addressed or they're they're not just going, yeah, yeah, that's yes. fine and giving yes. you short there, shrift? There is, there is. a. I was just at a national uh, quality forum conference a couple of days back and, uh, you know, there is a huge move towards virtual care, um, telehealth. Um, for proceduralists like our orthopedic surgeons, it's difficult to sort of design their practices around virtual care, but I think it's possible and it's coming. So telehealth, e-health, uh, that, that's going to be hugely popular. And, and CMS just announced, um, I, I think, a huge grant, about $1 million for artificial intelligence, um, use of artificial intelligence to uh, predict outcomes. Um, and I think uh, I think that's fascinating. And CMMI director Adam Bowler was at that conference and he was saying he believes very strongly strongly in uh, we get what we pay for. So we've been uh, paying for volume, so we were getting volume. If we pay for value, uh, we will get value. And everybody, even those who find it harder, some of us are easier uh, to change than others, uh, will get on that boat. And I strongly be, uh, support that. The um, But I think, you know, the, the telehealth, I agree, share, uh, holds a lot of promise. But kind of to an earlier point you made with regard to the the investment in the social or non-healthcare parts. And, and um, we were talking, uh, I was talking with uh, Dr. Huff, who's mm-hmm. from Georgia. Yeah. And uh, when she was working in a, a more rural uh, area, she said, you know, not the, the, the access to the internet yeah. uh, in those communities was yeah. not as good as it needed to be. So telehealth wasn't as readily available or as good as it, it could be. So, you know, one of the things that's going to make telehealth, you know, more accessible is improving the internet capability, the connectivity in some of those remote or remote areas um, to really allow that to occur. So it kind of speaks to the point you were making earlier of, you know, trying to 
develop a better healthcare delivery system isn't focusing exclusively on healthcare and medical care, but all of those other things that uh, are a part of that, but not necessarily always thought about. Yes, uh, rural broadband and net neutrality, those are things, those pre- people would think that's not really, really related to healthcare, but it is, like just as you laid it out, yeah. Yeah, we, um, I just, there was a really neat project I uh, was with some folks last week about. It was a telehealth where mm-hmm. in Louisiana um, they've approved uh, a telehealth with a rural clinic and the schools mm-hmm. uh, in, the, in their parish. And uh, they've put uh, the cameras and the technology into the nurses' offices. And so if a student is sick or ill, they can go to the nurse's office. They can have a visit with a nurse practitioner uh, who's at the clinic. And, you know, it, it eliminates the need for the parents to take a day off. It eliminates, uh, you know, uh, that gets the, the child missing school, uh, you know, for just the transfer, you know, going back and forth and go down to the nurse's office 15 minutes and they're back uh, in the classroom, uh, presuming it's something they're able to go back. So I, yeah, I do. I mean, we see examples of where telehealth uh, really has the opportunity, um, but but there's still some things to be worked out there. Um, any uh, thoughts in terms of uh, where you'd like to see things go, or if you you had the opportunity to, uh, you know, talk to some of the policymakers to say, you know, if there's one or two things you could do, really kind of focus in on these areas. Uh, well, um, I I'll go. This is repetitive, but um, I will go back to uh, asking policymakers to invest more and more on social services. Our demographics are changing. We are aging very fast. And then on the other hand, the younger people, they are much more racially and ethnically diverse in this country. So we have to look at both ends and uh, we have to invest more on social services than on healthcare. Uh, That's what I always talk to policymakers about. Well, that's great. Uh, Dr. Deb, we appreciate uh, you taking time to talk with us today. Uh, you've really given us some uh, great insight uh, and a perspective uh, as a researcher, as an analyst uh, into this issue. And uh, we look forward to continuing to work with you and talk with you in the future. Thanks, Bill. Very happy to be here. Thanks for talking to me.